If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we do need your direct support to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. And that is the power of the collective. So join us today as a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support. I was a scientist. I trained as a scientist. I was an ecologist. I still see great value in science and I wouldn't want to to get rid of it entirely. But I'm very clear that we need to put boundaries around the kind of knowledge that science can generate and accept that there may be other forms of knowledge that are equally valid that don't involve abstraction, that involve a deep knowing through being in the world. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Andy Letcher, a senior lecturer at Schumacher College, Devon, United Kingdom, where he runs the Masters in Engaged Ecology. He's the author of Shroom, A Cultural History of the Magic Mushroom, and numerous papers and chapters about the nature of contemporary psychedelic experience. We begin here by expanding on this remark by Dr. Letcher. The idea of the self, referring to the dominant contemporary sense of this individualistic, isolated self, underpins neoliberal late capitalism, and it's not a very ecological view of the self, end quote. So here I'm very much drawing on the thought of the Australian environmental philosopher Freya Matthews, who wrote extensively about this in her book, The Ecological Self. But in her analysis, the Western conception of the self is that we are individuals. We are the fundamental unit, if you like, is the individual. And the self is a singular thing, and it's atomistic. And I suppose the image that people like to use is of the billiard ball, the the pool ball, that we just bounce around making rational consumer choices, trying to find connection with other people. But really, there's just a singular I here, and that's all there is. And of course, that famously in Britain led in the 1980s for the then Conservative Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to say there's no such thing as society, 
by which she meant we are just individuals and that's all there is. And it's easy to see why this is, is not a particularly ecological view of the self. We're all just isolated from the world. We're isolated from each other. And we just exist in, in this sort of almost solipsistic world. And so I wanted to, well, I'm, I'm not alone in questioning this, this view of the self and seeing it as fundamentally problematic and wondering whether there are other views of the self that might afford a more ecological view or, or, or allow us to be more ecologically minded. So we can challenge it on two fronts. We can challenge it on whether there really is a singular I. And we can challenge this idea of being surrounded by a hard, impermeable boundary. Now, at first sight, it might seem a bit strange, this idea to challenge whether there's a singular me in here, a singular I. But of course, Jung famously did that and said there were all sorts of aspects of the psyche, both conscious and unconscious, that need to be brought into conscious attention. We are, in fact, multiple. And, and we can think about this it's it's something we experience on a daily basis so someone might present me with um, a large slice of banoffee pie and some part of me goes yes I, I really want to eat that I want the satisfaction of sugar and fat and the pleasure of eating this pie but another part of me is going yes but if I do that I'll put on weight or this is not a healthy meal or whatever so we're I think we're very used actually to having multiple selves and multiple selves that don't always agree. So I don't think that's quite as scary as at first it might seem. But then we can question whether we are in fact, whether we do have this kind of impermeable boundary around the self. And of course, if you look to certain indigenous cultures, they would say that that's simply not the case. Here I'm very influenced by the teachings of a Southern African diviner, Sangoma, Colin Campbell, who says the whole point of all the rituals that indigenous people go through, the vigils, the austerities, the dancing all night, all of that is to render the self permeable, to open ourselves to the other, to the non-human. And it's something that we need to work on. It's something that we need to develop. And so in this model of the self, we're both multiple and permeable and porous, and we can let the world in. Now, that's a very different kind of model of the self to the, the Western one. And my suggestion is that were we to cultivate this, it would open us to the non-human world in ways that are inherently ecological. Let me just give you one, one practical example of that. And this is a story that comes from a a colleague and a teacher, Robin Bowman, who's an expert at, I don't know what to call it, nature connection or wilderness connection. He has a profound understanding of what's going on in the non-human world. And he was saying he was in southern Africa amongst the sand bushmen, and they were just sitting there preparing food. And suddenly there was an almighty commotion going on. All the birds started setting off alarm calls. And the women he was with looked up without really missing a beat, carried on their conversation and didn't really pay any attention to what was going on. Well, he went out to try and find out what was causing all the commotion amongst the birds. And it turns out it was a snake. And I forget what species of snake it was, but the birds were clearly alarmed by the snake. 
but from that alarm call, the women A, knew that it was a snake and B, knew that it wasn't a snake that was putting them or their children or their village in any danger. So there's a level of permeability to the non-human world that we in the West have completely lost. If any of us notice bird calls or bird song, that's a, a miracle in itself. But to know, oh yes, that bird call means that particular snake, there's a level of knowledge there that we've, we've lost, we've forgotten. So that's really just a practical example of how we can, A, develop a, a permeable self and the practical ecological utility of it. And you've made a remark that we've got the right philosophy. We've sorted that in a way. It still comes down to political change, structural change, economic change, and politicians having the political will to do it, end quote. Although when we talk about how these deeper worldview shifts might guide us towards collective healing, I wonder if this view also then questions whether incremental changes within our existing political frameworks and economic systems, based on a narrower and more bounded view of the self, are enough to address things like the climate crisis and sixth mass extinction if they aren't accompanied by deeper transformations that go beyond what we might be able to see or even measure quantitatively. And crucially, not that people should wait around for politicians, but whether our political leaders just need the will or also some deeper transformations themselves to reorient their values and ideas of progress. Well, yes. I mean, there's the $64 million question right there. Because, I mean, we're not short on science and I mean, there's this staggering statistic, isn't there, that half of the carbon dioxide we've released into the atmosphere ever in human existence has occurred since Al Gore's inconvenient truth came out in the 90s. So it's it's not like we didn't know. <laughs> so clearly we don't need more science, we don't need more evidence. So what would it take to persuade politicians to make this kind of change? And if, if I had the answer to that, then, um, you know, that would be great. If anyone had the answer to that, it's like there's just such an inertia in the, in the capitalist system that makes it incredibly resistant to change, such that the scarcer fossil fuels become, the more value there is in extracting them. And so it's obvious that we need, we need change at that large structural level and the changes we need have to occur at that level. And at this moment, politicians don't feel like they have the mandate to do that. And it, I'm sort of, I'm naively hoping that at some point someone will take the initiative and, and lead the people, but that doesn't seem to be on the agenda anytime soon. So in the meantime, what can the people do? Well, we, we can change ourselves. I mean, obviously, different people have different amounts of, of leverage. But what all of us can do is work on ourselves and, and change our relationship with the non-human and make changes in our lives. And cumulatively, it may not avert the climate crisis or mass extinction, but it might create enough of a political will to make the big structural changes that we need. And so it feels like something that we can all do, that we can all actively do to change our relationship to each other, to change our relationship to the non-human, to, to give it more attention and open ourselves in exactly the way I've been describing. Mm. 
I certainly don't have the answers either, but something I'm sort of stuck on is this thought that those who've acquired the most capital and political power tend to be the ones who do not hold values and worldviews of interconnectedness. And those who do embody, deeply embody values of interconnectedness, who I think are in much healthier relationships with community and the planet to guide us towards collective healing, are the ones who would not even have been interested in working towards maximizing personal profit at all costs or acquiring that sort of oppressive power and control. Yes, and I, I mean, I think you're right. One never wants to universalize the indigenous or romanticize the indigenous because that term covers a huge diversity of peoples living in a huge diversity of ways. But it is undoubtedly the case that indigenous peoples do preserve other ways of knowing that aren't recognized, as you say, in the West, that what's recognized in the West is abstraction, either abstraction philosophically or abstraction mathematically. So whatever's going on isn't really what's going on. The explanation lies behind the surfaces with perhaps a mathematical equation or a theory that can't actually be beheld. And so all our knowledge systems, in a sense, withdraw us from the, the world as we apprehend it, as we experience it. And yet this knowledge system is what's got us into the mess. It's also the knowledge system that is allowing us to see the extent of the mess we're in, but it's the knowledge system that's got into the mess. Now, I, I was a scientist. I trained as a scientist. I was an ecologist. I still see great value in science, and I wouldn't want to, to get rid of it entirely. But I'm very clear that we need to put boundaries around the kind of knowledge that science can generate and accept that there may be other forms of knowledge that are equally valid that don't involve abstraction, that involve a deep knowing through being in the world, through experiencing the world. Like the example of the snake I gave earlier. It sounds like a trivial example, but imagine you're walking through the world and and you simply know what's going on around you because of, of all the information that's coming at you from the birds, from the insects, from the weather. That's a very different kind of knowing to to looking at an app, you know, to tell you what's happening in the world. Speaking of these transformations that we need that go beyond what we can measure, you talk about three forms of ecology that I think would be helpful for us to elaborate on here, namely the biological focus, the socio-ecological movement, and the deeper and more spiritual aspect. I'd love it if you could walk us through these three ways of looking at ecology ending in how you might understand ecology as spirituality rather than it being separate. So I, w I was thinking about how the term ecology is, is used in practice. And, and I think that there are three broad ways in which it tends to be used in, in contemporary culture. And the first is its original meaning. It was, it was invented by the German zoologist Ernst Haeckel in the mid-19th century to mean ecology, the science, the study of organisms and the way they relate to each other and to the abiotic environment. And if you do a keyword search in Google, that's what the internet tends to think ecology is. So it's a science, it's a branch of biology, and it's trying to understand how living things all fit together. But there are 
two other related ways in which the term is used. And the second is that it's it's got something to do with social and political change between humans, the, the way humans structure themselves and the non-human world, the environment, nature, call it what you will. So we have terms like ecocide or eco-warrior or eco-feminism. In fact, it used to be called the ecology movement. The green movement used to be called the ecology movement. So here it's we're talking about political change vis-a-vis -vis the environment. Things like the deep ecology movement or extinction rebellion. So this is about political and social change. But then there's a third meaning which is, is commonly articulated, which is that ecology has something to do with spirituality, problematic word, but something to do with meaning. That if ecology teaches us anything, it's that the world is fundamentally interconnected and that there is meaning for us in that interconnection that there is a spiritual meaning to our being in the world, to that very interconnectedness. And people use these three terms interchangeably sometimes. Sometimes people who are talking about the interconnectedness of the world in a spiritual sense will invoke the science of ecology. People who are looking for political change always invoke the science of ecology. The science of ecology can be quite ambivalent about spiritual meanings or even hostile to spiritual meanings. But there are these three three meanings at play in contemporary culture. And I suppose speaking personally, I'm interested in all three. And to go back to those initial experiences I was talking about when I was a child, when I was a teenager, they were profoundly meaningful and they were something to do with my sense of belonging in the world, my belonging, my connectedness to the buzzards, to the trees, to the river, the estuary, to the seasons. And that became a kind of spur for me to become, ultimately, I was spent a time as an environmental activist. So I, I, I think it's a helpful map and just a way of, of, of laying out the territory and seeing seeing what the term means and how we can how we can use that how we can employ it mm. you touched on this earlier but just to read a quote from you as one of the major takeaways i had you share scientific ecology is concerned with quantity with measurement but what it does is it turns the world into complicated sets of measurements and outputs those measurements as equations, diagrams, and graphs. Whereas what we're talking about here in this third definition of ecology is more about quality. It's no longer a measurement. It's about a quality of interconnectedness and are finding a place within that interconnected world, end quote. On this note, whenever we talk about climate change in mainstream discourses, there's always this heavy narrative around believing science and looking to climate scientists as the most and perhaps only credible experts on what we need to do to heal our planet's distresses and imbalances. And I say this delicately and definitely more so as an invitation to have a yes and mindset rather than an either or mindset. But given the third definition of ecology being more about quality and relationality and embodying that permeable sense of the self, I wonder if we'd be doing ourselves a disservice or if we have been doing ourselves a disservice by propping up climate science as the one 
knowledge base to use to inform our path to addressing the crisis and just more broadly what this lens might lead us to miss out on? Yes, I mean, great question. So the the thing that has traction in the world, in the Western world, is science. And therefore we need science. And so science can show us, for example, the hockey stick graph of how carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere have risen steadily. And it can demonstrate that that's a result of human activity. I think that's incredibly useful and incredibly powerful. But as we've already touched on, there are these other ways of knowing. So, for example, we've had weird weather. And what I'm experiencing at the moment here in England is a very normal English summer. It's not a particularly good summer. It's a bit wet. It's a bit cloudy. It's going to be a bit of a rubbish summer, but that's not uncommon. But sometimes we've had an Indian summer whereby I'm sitting in the middle of November in t-shirt and shorts and it's bakingly hot during the day. And I don't need science to tell me that that's an aberration. I can feel its weirdness because I know what the weather ought to feel like. And in November, it ought to be cold and miserable and wet and, you know, winter coming in. I shouldn't be sitting around in a t-shirt and shorts putting on sun cream. So I think there's two things. If, if our concern is about creating change in the world, then I think we need both in terms of political change. But if we're, if we're talking about healing, then I think these other modalities of knowing are the way forward. And, and here's where we need to sort of hone our senses and hone these other ways of knowing by rendering ourselves pervious and permeable to the world, to understanding the quality of the weather. Weather has a quality. You know, we talk about being under the weather. But what would happen if we just, every morning, first thing we do when we open the door and, and greet the day is just pay attention to the quality of the weather. What's it feel like? Does it feel normal? Does it feel unusual? Is it going to rain today? Is it going to be sunny? Is it going to be hot? Is there going to be a frost? What, what does my body tell me? Now, that would be a different way of knowing about the weather. Do I need to pack a raincoat? So before, before I reach for my app to tell me whether to take an umbrella, what does my body tell me? Can I know the weather in that way? And in that sense, I think that is a, a way to profoundly heal our relationship with the world because now we're engaged with the world. We're paying attention to it. We can know it in a different way. Yeah, and... I do feel like it's really important to consider how we frame and conceptualize the problems that we have because that affects how we approach problem solving and what types of solutions that we ideate. For example, for me, the crisis of climate change is a symptom of the distress and imbalances of our planetary body and a sign as well of the erosion of place-based relationships, of course, forced erosion of a lot of these things. And it's also a sign of the deterioration of our collective well-being. But with a fixation, for example, on the measurement of atmospheric carbon levels, I mean, there are many ways to reduce atmospheric carbon levels and emissions that do not actually address the root causes of what that imbalance represents. 
There are ways to reduce atmospheric carbon levels while, for example, not actually healing place-based relationships and community while not making our ecological systems more diverse and resilient while not improving people's senses of vitality and fulfillment and spiritual enrichment. So what I've been trying to focus on is to center what it is exactly that we're really trying to heal and improve and better, such as our collective health, the diversity of life forms, and ecosystems, resilience, and capacity for regeneration, and so on, rather than at least overly fixating on these reductionistic abstractions that fail to tell the whole story. Well, yes, I mean, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and you're, thank you for sort of bringing that into focus, that all these, all these issues are connected. They're all part of a, a deeper malaise, a sort of crisis of meaning. and. Yes, they are related, and you're, and you're right. Some people are are putting forward sort of techno solutions, eco modernist solutions, or transhumanist solutions, which to me sound absolutely nightma- nightmarish. That they're they're ghastly. That they're they're just deepening the disconnect and using technology as a, as a means to get there. And I think part of what we we need to be doing. It's very easy to focus on on the apocalypse. The apocalypse is a kind of deep theme within Western culture. But what comes after? What kind of world do we want after? And how could we how could we maintain some of the benefits of what we have now? So, like we're having a, an amazing conversation here across continents, across time zones. I would hate to lose that. I think that's one of the most beautiful things of of the modern age. Is this connectivity but how could we keep that in a way in which we have relationship to place relationship to each other diversity resilience all these things you talk about what would that that sort of ecological civilization look like after the collapse so yes thank you for thank you for raising that those are all excellent points Well, to expand on how our worldviews shape how we relate to the planet, you also talk about animism, including the perhaps misguided early interpretations and views of the word and form of spirituality. And you share, an animistic worldview is one I think that is deeply embedded in relationality, exactly the kind we need at this moment of crisis. So far from it being a quote-unquote primitive thing, I think actually it can show us ways forward about how to be in the world and how to be in the world with gratitude, knowledge, reciprocity, end quote. Of course, I know, you know, religion and spirituality can be a sensitive topic, and I want to honor everyone for who and where they are in this. And just as there are a lot of different diets that are healthy and that look very different we can still, I think, come to an agreement that certain ways of eating are less healthy and certain ways of eating are more nourishing, but with a lot of diversity within that. So in a similar way, I also wonder, there's a lot of emphasis on freedom of thought and belief, which is beautiful. Diversity lends itself to resilience at the end of the day. So I think generally it's a very positive thing to have a foundation that 
gives everybody the openness to feel and believe whatever we want to believe. And that also gives us the freedom and openness to constantly evolve as well. Although with humility, I would also ask if there are certain worldviews that could be seen as less healthy for us as a collective and certain worldviews that guide us to be able to better enhance life and our well-being. So how would you navigate this delicate topic and what do you think more people can learn from the animistic worldview? Yes, so thank you. Thank you for framing it so well. So as a scholar of religion, I would never impose any worldview on anyone. I find them all equally fascinating. And personally, I I suppose I have a worldview, but it shifts and it changes and, and it's contradictory and, and what have you. But I think animism is helpful because it's, I think it's very open to many people. And animism is simply the view that sees the world as full of people, only some of whom are human, but all of whom are worthy of respect. So instead of seeing that tree over there as a provider of shade or apples in the autumn or timber or whatever, I can see it as a person. I don't mean I'm not projecting humanness onto it. It's a tree person. It's doing what a tree person does. It's eating light and entertaining intimacies with fungi and all these other species that dwell in it and with it. But if I regard it as being a person, if I afford it personhood, then it behoves me to find the right and respectful way to relate to it. Now, sometimes that right and respectful way to relate to it might be to cut it down and, and use it its timber. Animism doesn't mean you don't kill things or you don't eat them, but it does mean that you do so with respect. Now, we don't respect the world in capitalist society. You know, you, you go to the supermarket and there are just trays and trays full of meat and I've no idea where that meat came from or how the animal was treated and it certainly wasn't treated with respect whereas traditional cultures that are animistic there may be all sorts of ways in which you respectfully relate to an animal if you're going to kill it and if you're going to eat it and after you've killed it and after you've eaten it and that's a very different kind of relationship and the, the same would apply with plants or with trees it's not an extractivist worldview. It's a worldview of respect and a worldview of relationality. Now, I'm not saying it's going to be the, the miracle cure, but I'm saying it's a very different way of relating to the world, one which means we have to pay attention to the other and ask, what does the other need? What does it require of us? What can we give back? It's about reciprocity. It's not about taking it's about giving back to the world and taking only what we need. So it's, it doesn't require any kind of spiritual belief. You can be a, an atheist or you can be a theist. It doesn't matter. Animism is simply a way of relating to the non-human world that involves respectful relationships. Hmm. Well, I want to pivot to magic mushrooms and plant medicines as you've shared, an ever-growing number of psychedelic enthusiasts 
claim that the judicious use of psychedelics or plant medicines can engender profound, even spiritual experiences of nature connection. They suggest that at a time of ecological crisis, psychedelics might just be the tool we need to turn our attention from the human to the non-human to restore our appreciation of the beauty of the world, end quote. But you question if this is really the case, and I'm curious about this as well and would love it if you could take us through your train of thought on how you've challenged this claim and why, as you say, there must be first a careful reframing within a reimagined worldview, end quote. So there's a growing body of anecdotal evidence and now empirical evidence that the use of psychedelics, certain psychedelics, particularly psilocybin, ayahuasca also, ibogaine, iboga, these classic tryptamine psychedelics occasion profound experiences of connection with the non-human world. And I say anecdotal because I collect a lot of trip reports and people tell me these stories and I hear this story over and over again. And then at Imperial College in London, Sam Gandhi and his team have been trying to measure this empirically, that after a dose of psilocybin, people do tend to feel more connected to the non-human world, to nature. They feel more related to nature. But as you rightly point out, the question then is, what does that mean? Does it translate into any lasting behavior change? And often it doesn't. And it's easy to think that psychedelics can be this magic bullet that they will they will save the world, but it's quite clear as 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 research is coming out that I read a paper recently about how there's been some very unsavory right wing thinkers who've been pro psychedelics and psychedelics haven't made them into progressive liberals. If anything, they've hardened their right wing views, and likewise, we're seeing in in America where where the, the law is being softened and there's a move towards psychedelic-assisted therapy, the venture capitalists are moving in and they're seeing this as a, a great opportunity to make money. So it's not like psychedelics are making people become rabid anti-capitalists wanting to overthrow the system. On the contrary, they're seeing this as an opportunity to make a large profit. So I see it as more like a a lemniscate, a figure of eight, that clearly psychedelics can, in certain carefully administered, prescribed circumstances, can afford people that experience of the non-human world, the kind of experience that I started this, this podcast with, that I experienced as a child. They can engender that, but we need more than that to affect change in the world. We need a worldview change a change towards a more ecological self, a more porous self, an animistic self. The two go hand in hand. So we need animistic contexts in which people take psychedelics to enable them to become better animists, if you see what I mean. They're not a magic bullet. We need cultural change as well as the gnosis, the revelation, the epiphanies that come with psychedelic experiences. Yeah, so just having all of the people holding positions of power in political institutions or major corporations, all of them taking psychedelics, unfortunately, won't cut it or lead to that awakening that is necessary for their and our collective healing. Well, sadly not. And uh, 
I remember back in the 90s thinking, well, sooner or later, the 60s generation will be in power and they'll all be psychedelic and then, and then utopia will come. And of course, that's happened and utopia hasn't come at all. In fact, the opposite of anything, you know, we're, we're, we're swinging more to a conservative world. So yes, they're, they're not, they're not a magic bullet. I mean, our current politicians were, were all drug takers in their youth and they're, yeah, it's not utopia. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm, t- I'm saying that I'm I'm talking very much about British politicians, and um, I, I should I should be more circumspect about what I'm saying. Um, there were some very serious and believable allegations about David Cameron when he was Prime Minister that in his youth he had taken cocaine. He never confirmed or denied those allegations, but it does seem like they were a generation who, in their youth, were very open to using drugs. So sorry, just um, being a little bit careful about what I'm saying here. Yeah, I appreciate you adding context to that. And while we are coming to a close for our main discussion here, though I want to leave this open for you now to share anything else you feel called to share in this moment and also just any other words of guidance that you have for our listeners. Gosh, words of guidance. Well, uh, I... I mean, these are unprecedented times and humanity has never, I'm not sure any species has got, has faced a mass extinction knowing that they're in a mass extinction. You know, this is the sixth mass extinction, but this is the first time we've, we've known that this is happening and it's in our power to do something about it. So on one level, that's utterly depressing and bleak and, awful on another level there's a a sense in which nothing has changed we were always going to die we are mortal beings and in the time that's given to us i still think it's possible to create better worlds through opening ourselves to each other and to the world and opening ourselves to the sheer exquisite beauty of being alive, the unfolding of a flower, the changing of the seasons, the exquisite beauty of a sunset. These are not insignificant things. This is, this is our birthright as, as a human to experience the beauty of the world, knowing that our time here was always short-lived, always. That, that much hasn't changed. So whilst I'm not advocating quietism and, and sitting back and, and navel-gazing, I, 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 want, I want activism and I want the world to change and I'm going to fight every step of the way for a better world. At the same time, there is a, a beauty and a serenity that comes from accepting that our time here is limited and that we can just delight in the beauty of what the world is.
What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? Tyson Yunkaporter's Sand Talk. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Oh my gosh, just chill out. <laughs> And what is your greatest source of inspiration at the moment? Oh, bird song. I try and learn a new bird song every year. And try and understand the world through birdsong and bird calls, and、uh, I find it incredibly moving and powerful. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close. Be sure to head to our show notes at greendreamer.com for the episode references and links to Andy's work. And for now, Andy, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. So grateful for our conversation, and honored to have been able to share this dialogue with you. For now, as we're coming to a wrap, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Just keep on keeping on and keep dreaming a green and better future. I'm very grateful and honored to have been invited on the podcast. You've asked some amazing questions, and and thank you very much for having me. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To make a contribution to help sustain and co-create the future of this show, you can head to greendreamer.com/support. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing, so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So, if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is "Power" by India Blue. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.